Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Earlier this month, in August 2020, President Trump signed uh, what the New York Times called the Landmark Land Conservation Bill. And when he signed it, uh, Trump said, from an environmental standpoint and from just the beauty of our country standpoint, there hasn't been anything quite like this since Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, interesting that Trump should make that remark uh, in August 2020. Um, David Gessner has a new book out. David is very distinguished. Um, I don't know, we would call him a, a nature writer, environmental writer, uh, travel writer, mix of the three but a really interesting book about a travel, a trip around America, leave it as it is, built around a narrative of Theodore Roosevelt's American wilderness. Uh, David, uh, I'm afraid we have to start with Trump. I don't want to spend too much time in this conversation <laughs> talking about him. Uh, but what do you make of, of this supposed landmark land conservation bill? Is it a, a profound insult to TR and is Trump even mentioning Roosevelt itself, a kind of blasphemy? I'm afraid we're going to have to start with Trump. <laughs> a great line. Um, yeah, the book actually grew out of Trump, but we can get to that later. Uh, to answer your question, first of all, there is one overlap between Mr. Trump and Mr. Roosevelt. And there, there are actually a few, believe it or not, they both were known for having small hands which is kind of bizarre. And they were both born in Manhattan with silver spoons in mouth. Um, but one of the main ones is they were perhaps the two biggest sinkholes for attention in American presidential history. Uh, Roosevelt's daughter, Alice, said of him, he wanted to be the bride at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral, and the baby at every christening. And what's remarkable to me is, though he's taken some hits lately, how successful he's been. Like I have this book coming out and he's in the news for the reasons you described, for the toppling of the statue at the American Museum of Natural History, for Trump mispronouncing Yosemite and Yosemite. Um, you know, it's like, he's, it's like he's right here 160 years after he died. Um, I have been so embroiled in my uh, book launch basically that I've relied secondhand on shooting emails to environmental friends saying, what's the catch? That's my reaction to the Great Outdoors Act, because I knew who it was sponsored by, both Colorado and Montana senators who are famously tied to fossil fuels. And I knew that there was a big emphasis on infrastructure and on fossil fuel money. So that may be a little suspicious, but the, the take I have right now is, it's a good, not great thing. And one of the exciting things for me about it, and I hope we can get into this a little later, 
is that it shows something that has been historically true, the overlap between conservative and liberals on and having common ground on the ground itself on, on public lands. This was true after the Civil War. This was true at the founding of our country. So it's, it's, it's really good to see this. I'm not gonna say it's great or invigorating or thrilling, but, but I'm glad to see it. I'm not so crazy about Trump comparing himself to Roosevelt, um, which of course I consider a joke, but you know, once he saves 230 million acres, he can start making that comparison. Yeah, I was struck with this supposed comparison between Trump and, 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 and Roosevelt uh, in your book. Um, and it struck me that TR is, is very much the un-Trump in many ways. Perhaps he was obsessed with attention. There's certainly an element of narcissism to him. But he had a lot of friends, and he had what you called species humility, which I think the current president of the United States doesn't have. What is it about TR that enabled him to marry an element of perhaps distasteful narcissism with this species humility and this willingness to, to, to be generous with other people that clearly the current president of the United States doesn't have? I'm gonna take, throw kind of a long bomb here. I haven't really thought of this before. Uh, your question is spurring this. That the same qualities that he had are the qualities we need to go back to historical figures and use historical empathy. Um, we can be absorbed with ourselves in our own time, but by reaching beyond, it, and re in this case, reaching back, we can grow. That being said, practically speaking, he had a father, probably very unlike Mr. Trump's father, who was a large, philanthropic, generous man, and he looked up to him like no other. He said, it's the only man I feared, and he, he deeply respected. His father was actually quite a lot more religious than he was. He practiced muscular Christianity, he called it, no more meek little Jesus. And Roosevelt kind of turned that into muscular environmentalism, I thought. So he had this father figure to start with. And then he was an aggressive reader. At one point, he was reading a book a day, again, very unlike our, our current president, who may have read a book in the last decade. And then... Um, was his choice, his early choice of ambition and career. He didn't want to be a statesman. He didn't want to be a soldier. He wanted to be a naturalist like Charles Darwin. And his studying of the natural world, uh, which was very intense and very particular, and birds were his first great love and allowed him, his first writing grew out of his love of birds, allowed him to get outside of himself. And wilderness itself, being out in wild places, which came later in his life, allowed him to get out of himself. And as a fairly self-absorbed person myself sometimes, I love being in places where it takes me away from me and, and breaks me out of that. And, and I think what we have with, with Roosevelt, there's plenty to criticize and we can dwell on that too. But what I do see is this growth toward more empathy, toward what you said was species humility, which is because of his early training, and because of his love of being in wilderness, he escaped from anthropocentrism, which is, you know, as big a prejudice or bigger prejudice than anything. He was able to see that the world existed with animals and plants and fungi 
and he grew beyond you know the the small um, kind of petty inward turn vision. So for me, that was the most exciting thing, and I really came to it as a lover of nature. Um, that was my main focus when I first came to Roosevelt. Yeah, I, I'm struck by your your emphasis on on Roosevelt being able to separate himself uh, from, from 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 himself through nature, and I wonder if that also came out in terms of his relationship with his father. You you say both T.R. and and Trump had very close relationships with their fathers. Perhaps they idolized him, but clearly Trump has no ability to separate himself and recognize that Fred Trump may have been in his, in, in some ways, a, very certainly a very successful, perhaps even a remarkable man, but he made mistakes. What you suggest in your narrative of TR is that his decision, for example, to fight uh, in, uh, in, in, in Cuba was itself uh, a reflection of his father's failure to fight in the Civil War. So even if he idolized his father, you're still able to recognize that his father wasn't a godlike figure, that he wasn't perfect. Yeah, yeah. And, and you said something earlier that um, I thought about a lot. When I was traveling, I, I went up to Medora and I went to Dickinson, North Dakota on the way where the Roosevelt Center is. And Sharon Kilzer, who works there, had, um, had lunch with me right near where there's a statue of TR where he captured the boat thieves. And she said, you know, two things that struck me about TR, um, she comes from the Dakotas and is a, from hunting families. And she said, his hunting was aggressive and beyond the can, even for a hunter. Um, but the other was how many good friendships he had with both women and men throughout his life. Friendships that um, stuck, like Owen Wister, who um, you know, really created the Westerns. Uh, and these long letters he would write to them. And the other thing she mentioned was, he was an amazing talker and a fast talker, like he did everything else. They called him the Gatling gun of conversation. But he also, when it was his turn to listen, was a very focused, uh, caring listener as well. And you don't always get that with monologists, you know, so. And you say in the book that he hated people without morality, that he had a, a, an antennae that, 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 that recognized people who lacked morality. There's an amazing um, relevance to now because what he really lashed out against was the elite criminal class, as he called it the wealthy. He was called a traitor to his class because, of course, he grew up wealthy. But what's fascinating, you know, I like to think, since I'm so focused on nature and climate, I love to think of him in the climate change fight. I believe he, just as he did with environmentalism, he would create the arena and the language for the fight. He would fearlessly take on fossil fuels, uh, uh, industries just as he did the trusts and the railroads right and he really had no reverence he he said he he didn't respect success just for success sake for money's sake and it's really interesting i mean it's a little bit much at times the the intense moralizing but how refreshing right now to have somebody who had a clear right and wrong and followed it 
David, talk to me about the book itself. It's, would you call it a, a travelogue, a history, a, a personal reflection? Um, I really enjoyed it on, on many levels, including your own relationship with your nephew, uh, who you took with as a kind of sidekick to this wonderful journey you do around America from east to west and then back east, uh, tracing uh, TR's footsteps in both a literal and metaphorical sense. Well, a little backstory, you know, I started as a novelist in my 20s and my novels were very clunky. My characters would quote the road to each other and it was quite stilted. <laughs> um, and then I turned to create so-called creative nonfiction when I moved to Colorado in my 30s. And the first book I wrote, I thought was a memoir about my dad's death. And when it came out, the critics called it a nature book because it had some turds and trees in it or whatever. And I was like, no, it's not a nature book. It's a memoir. Anyway, this wrestling match continued until like my fourth book, which was called Sick of Nature, where I finally thought I'd shed the nature writer label, but I'm still getting it in the reviews this week of that book. So I guess I'll never get beyond it. But of course, there is a strong element of nature writing in the book. What I've found, you know, this is book 11, and I had a professor in Colorado, Reg Sonner, who, brilliant writer, who talked about the pleasures of the difficult. So about three books ago, I decided I'm going to try to weave multiple things, a trip, a journey, right, um, environmental uh, history and environmental overview, but present moment nature as well, and of course, the personal component. And I was very lucky this trip, it just fell into place that my nephew Noah was graduating from University of North Carolina, Asheville, 21 year old. And I could take him on this trip out west following Teddy. And just as I'd gone as a young man out west and first seen the mountains. And, and it was perfect, because as you mentioned, it was almost like it was, it was too easy, because this is a kid who loved the big Lebowski and thought the dude was his hero. And as we're driving through the Midwest, I'm playing these tapes of Teddy talking or of uh, biographies. And he is so sick of Teddy Roosevelt's like vigorous, manly, you know, he's sick of the phrase manly vigor. So he was a really good kind of counterbalance for me. And as we, we mentioned before we started, I brought him, he'd never been to the Pacific before, and I brought him out to San Francisco. And then to my sister's dis dismay, I gave him his first edible uh, as kind of his, his journey into manhood. <laughs> so it was great to have him along. And I always try to balance giving condensed historical and biographical information with a kind of looser narrative, hopefully with some humor in it. You mentioned being an, a nature writer and your own love-hate relationship with that. You say at one point in the book, I was really struck with this, that uh, seeing nature brings us to quote unquote wordless places how do how do writers describe wordless places well you know i think that when you're in the echo chamber of your own head or i think samuel johnson called it the prison cell of self um you're at your worst you know you're you're most self-conscious i mean one thing about writing if you've done it every day for 20 years i always tell my students you know you don't have to doesn't have to be a rainy day in October and you don't have to be listening to Neil Young to be inspired. You can do it every day if you 
if you start to get this kind of regularity to it, like regular inspiration. So that's my base level as a writer. That's what I do, you know, holidays and all. But I also like to break out of this room I'm sitting in right now and out of my own brain. And when I'm in wild places or when I'm alone out in, in spectacular places, I like the feeling of being kind of shocked out of self and, and into something more. And it does start as wordlessness, but um, it's where some of my best words have come from. And, and so one of the themes of the book is my kind of imagining Roosevelt as a writer, because of course, while he's doing, while he's leading the free world, while he's charging up San Juan Hill, while he's doing all these other things, he's also writing articles and books about them to the tune of 45 books, right? So he's like a reality show onto himself. You know, he's, he's charging into things and then at night he's typing them up. So I like to think like, for instance, the famous Leave It As It Is speech, I kind of speculate about how he wrote that or how he wrote when he was in the Badlands and how that place got inside of him and, and created this, created the words. Of course, I'm being very inarticulate saying this because that's the whole point. It's the ineffable, right? The, the word, word list that leads to words and I didn't answer your question. <laughs> but there seems to be something almost fictional, not almost, something fictional about TR. He's, 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 he's hard to believe. Do you think he really existed? Or have we essentially made him up? It's funny because in my books that I sign, I draw a little, I was a cartoonist in an earlier life. I drew a little cartoon of Roosevelt and he is somewhat of a cartoon and was kind of perceived that way historically. It's funny because I study literary reputations like Thoreau who disappears off the grid and then slowly starts coming back, you know, in the 20th century. So Roosevelt is, you know, immensely popular in his time. And then he starts to kind of, that popularity starts to kind of dribble away and we remember the cartoon and we remember the teddy bear and we see, you know, um, car literal cartoons about him, like little comic figures. Like even in the big Lebowski, the, the other Lebowski is kind of a Rooseveltian figure. But then the comeback really starts, I think, with um, David McCullough's Morning in Horseback and Edmund Morris's first biography, where we get, and this is probably, what is it? early, late 70s, early 80s. And I remember picking up that book and reading about him leaving behind the East after his mother has died and his wife has died and moving to the Badlands and suddenly throwing himself, you know, in the saddle for 24 hours. And, um, and my favorite scene, which I got to squeeze in, um, following the boat thieves up the ice-choked little Missouri River with his two ranch hands, chasing down these boat thieves who he's going to bring to jail, but he also brings along Anna Karenina and reads the novel in the back <laughs> of the... So he's a cartoon, right? But this cartoon that they presented, the kind of revitalizing of... I remember reading it, and I was like, wow. The next two weeks after reading it, I was really productive and energetic. It's like this guy's contagious or something. It's like taking a TR pill, you know? And, and so he is over the top. Um, I don't know if you remember this from the book, but the, the Maxwell House expression, good to the last drop, comes from something he said, because the guy drank coffee yeah. from when he woke up in the morning till right before he went to sleep. And as Morris says, he would go to sleep very energetically. <laughs> so so yeah, I think you're he, right. He certainly was the, 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 the most 
caffeinated president in this country's history. Yeah. Maybe an argument in favor of, of, of more caffeine for presidents. You, 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 you exactly. mentioned being a, a travel writer of a type. And do you think that there's a, a symmetry, a synergy between your search? Because travel writers are always searching for something. Right. Searching, it seems, in this book for two things simultaneously. Perhaps they're the same things. You're searching for TR as this authentic American hero, this unbelievable character who really did exist. And of course, you're also searching for nature. You're searching for American wilderness. You're searching for uh, the original state of the country. Uh, is, is, is the quest in um, Leave It As It Is is it a similar quest for the authenticity of the human condition and of nature? I would, I, I would say it is with one caveat, which is I wrote an earlier book that did the same thing, kind of weaving Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner. And that book, the pre I always need a pressing personal question to go along with the bigger question. And that book, I don't know how well you know Abbey and Stegner, but Abbey's just this total wild man, you know, uh, uh, anarchist nature guy, and Stegner is much more refined. And so I had just turned 50 and I had a young daughter. And my question there was, you know, how can I mix these two things? And how can I leave my young Abby behind and become more Stegnerian? And this book, one of the early drivers was, I've been writing about nature for decades. And it's time for me to put up and sh or shut up a little bit. I wanted to more actively fight as an activist. And so I looked to Roosevelt as a model in that way. And as it turned out um, in the book, there was this weird mixing of Roosevelt, whose attitudes toward Native Americans are pretty reprehensible, with the Native tribes that had created Bears Ears, this kind of confluence of these two different things. And it was while I was in Bears Ears, that I started to kind of change what I was searching for more toward what you're saying, like this kind of new ideal of, of nature. Um, but of course there's no new ideal, right? I mean, it's just, I mean, the, somebody walking a thousand years ago into a beautiful place might've said, Ugh, uh, you know, but they were, they were, had the same biophilic feelings that we have. So as I approached Bears Ears and uh, which, you know, is this national monument created or at least inspired by the native tribes? I really, I really started to have this kind of vision of of a new fight for nature that was not, you know, one thing I don't like to do. I mean, I, I admire the hell out of TR, but in a way, if he were here right now, he would just be another emphatic voice. You know, they'd have him on MSNBC every day, just going and and and. And I'm kind of interested, and this is one of the reasons I mentioned the common ground of public lands. I'm kind of interested to in finding out if there's any way to reach out to the other side. And when I've done that, uh, an example would be, I went down to the oil spill, the BP oil spill in the Gulf um, and wrote a book called The Tarball Chronicles. When I've done that, and my hero in that book was the big conservative hunting guide who called Obama my president, teasing me. Um, um, I find like when I'm in the world, there's more overlap. For instance, with this guide, it was 
the soiling and the despoiling of the water and the land during the, and, and we, so we did have some common ground. So I don't want to sound too hokily hopeful. We began with Trump and, and, you know, we can't say enough bad things about him, but maybe, maybe, maybe there'll be a time when we can talk to each other again in the future. And if that's true, I like to think the land is part of that conversation and part of a common language. And if there is a polemic in the book, it seems to be against museums, nature as a museum, TR as a museum. I bet you don't like museums, David. <laughs> well, also the, the fact, I'll give you an example of, um, we talked about you traveling back east before we started. Right. And one of the places I'm going to send you through is one of the first places I hiked through in that part of the world. And I went with my friend Rob Blyberg, who runs an environmental organization in Colorado. And Rob very wisely didn't tell me what we were going to find. And we hiked for about two hours in southeast Utah. And we didn't see another soul. Beautiful. You know, if, if that had been the whole hike, it would have been amazing. But we got to a spot and we turned a corner. And there was an Anasazi village tucked into the cliff. As organic, I think I wrote in the book, as a cliff swallow's home. And it was one of those just mind-blowing moments. Um, to your point, you go to Mesa Verde, see something very similar, but you wait in a line first and you, you know, take your ticket sort of thing. And the, the authenticity and the surprise is gone. So that jolt, that was like a living museum. And that's really going to be the trick of which is, a, which is a contradiction in terms. Once it's yeah. living, it's no longer a museum. And it's interesting you bring that up because one of the things the book is about is a history of the Antiquities Act. And that grew out of that very thing, that we were shipping native antiquities to Europe to be in museums. And the United States got pissed off about that and in the late 1800s. And that's one of the things that led to us creating the Antiquities Act. Um, and that's how we save national monuments. So it's all let's, uh, let, let's end with TR, David. You have a, a, a really, I, I thought, very powerful conclusion to the book in which you came back to what distinguished this man, this remarkable man who, as we said, sort of seems today to be fictional. And you said it was, you, you used the E word, effort. Are you falling back into a, a kind of, aristocratic ethic, a late 19th, early 20th century aristocratic ethic of effort? Is that what we need to return to? Is that what you learned above all else from this journey into nature? Courage is helpful too. That's another old fashioned term. And, and will, you know, these, these kind of old fashioned, um, you know, as William James Ger said. Germanic, Germanic terms. Yes, well, Gessner is my last name, so. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and, you know, as William James said, if will doesn't exist, we might as well pretend it does since, you know, that's how it feels internally. And Roosevelt defined himself, not as a genius, like some of his friends, though he had a photographic memory, um, but as a striver. And whatever the case, you know, for all we know as modern thinkers, you know, we can say it was all physiology, it was genes, it was his wealth, it was whatever. But to him, it felt like it had a lot to do with trying. And whatever you say about the guy, <laughs> you can't say he didn't try. He was, there, there, was, there was effort. Now, he also had a lot of other skills, but that was in the mix. And he always, you know, 
perhaps blindly believed in it. Um, so what would Teddy do? I think you introduced that term in the book. Um, he certainly would read this book, leaving it as, uh, leave it as it is, your wonderful, whatever we want to call it, travelogue, fiction, nonfiction, narrative into the soul or the absence of the soul in contemporary America. Uh, usually I end, David, with asking you what else you would read. You're stuck in North Carolina, like everybody else in this weird summer of 2020. But let me let me add a twist to, to the final, final question. What would Teddy be reading today? He'd be reading your book, of course. What wisdom would Teddy be gleaning from contemporary fiction or nonfiction? Well, we started with Mr. Trump, so let's do a full circle here. And I'll suggest that whatever, and, and we didn't really dwell too much on Roosevelt's flaws, which we could certainly do, but whatever his flaws, his strength was, he was what Wallace Stegner called a grower and a learner. And at one point, as I said, he would read a book a night. One of those books would certainly be David Quammen's Spillover, which presciently predicted this current pandemic down to the bats. It was written about eight years ago. You should get him on your show, in fact. Uh, mm. And why I bring that up is it's great scientific journalism. And Roosevelt uh, deeply believed in science. And I'm just picturing him at this moment quite differently, operating quite differently than our president, where he would learn the science, he would lean on the scientists, but his other skill was as a speaker. And he would distill, you know, he, he would do something with mass, with all our other issues that would stirringly convince us that that was the way to go to follow the science. And then, you know, once we take care of that, he'd turn to climate change and do the same with that. In which case he should read Bill McKibben's Falter, another a great book about climate. Well, the one thing that you've convinced me in this show, David, is that I think TR is probably watching this somewhere, somehow, right? <laughs> Excellent. Bully. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.